morning. It is just uh, wonderful to be in the house of God together. Amen. And I just want to welcome everyone uh, who is online watching this morning. We're so glad to have you with us. So we are at the end of our sermon series. It's called Credo. Do you know what that means? It means I believe. And so we took a little bit of liberty because as a body of Christ, as a whole, as Jesus followers, we can say, we believe. Amen? 27 topics we talked about in these last few months about what we believe. So we're going to talk about today, the last one is about evangelism. Yay! Wow, that was weak. (laughs) Evangelism. Yay! All right, how many people here consider themselves an evangelist? Okay, a couple people. All right, that's cool. No worries. I'm excited to talk about evangelism today and truly how we are all called to be evangelists. So I'm hoping that maybe I can change someone's perspective today. So again, as I was saying earlier, as a four-square church and as the body at large, people who use the Bible to base their lives on, we follow Jesus, right? We believe that the church's primary responsibilities are taking the gospel to the entire world and making disciples. The two scriptures that we use for that are Mark 16 and 15 and Matthew 28, 19 through 20, which I promise I will expound on later. Who was here last week? Anybody? Okay. Do you remember Kelly's sermon on hell? Wasn't it great? It was an awesome thing. What? Hell no. What? That was the name of the sermon. (laughs) Anyways, that was his name, the sermon. But I believe he presented a paradigm shift in what I believe is so many people's thinking. He presented this paradigm shift because people think that God just wants to send bad people to hell. A lot of people think that about God. And he changed our paradigm shift. He changed our thinking to the truth, to the reality of what the Bible says. And that is that he wants to save us from that destination called hell. Do you remember that Kelly said that? He doesn't want to send us there. He is saving us from that. That is his desire. And this is um, what 2 Peter 3.9 has to say about that and to support that. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? This is another translation, and it's a a, um, paraphrase, but I love it. It says, this means that contrary to man's perspective, the Lord is not late with his promise to return, as some measure lateness, but rather his delay simply reveals his loving patience towards you, because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Does that sound like a God who just wants to send people to hell? Open up the hatch, see ya. No, that's not his heart. His heart is the opposite. His desire is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. I love this quote originally from G.K. Chesterton. Anybody know who G.K. Chesterton is? Okay, he is this brilliant 19th century, early 20th century English writer. He wrote novels, he wrote poems, he wrote essays, he was a literary and art critic, he was a lay theologian and also um, an apologist. I love the way, I I went through like a hundred of his quotes and it was so cool because I thought, gosh, I want to 
wish I could have been this guy's friend. It would have been fun to hang out with him. He was called the Prince of Paradox by a lot of people because he would make points to allegories and everything that he wrote kind of had a twist to it. And I'm going to give you a few examples and you'll see what I mean. So a couple of the things he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Another quote of his is, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Isn't that cool? Another quote of his was, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. That's good, isn't it? And I love this last one too. Like I said, he has millions of them, but this is just a few that I picked out. He said, let a man walk 10 miles steadily on a hot summer's day along a dusty English road and he will soon discover why beer was invented. <laughs> now, I am not a beer drinker, but if I walked 10 miles on an English dusty road, I, I'd probably want one too. So anyways, those are just a few of his quotes. I would suggest going and looking them up because they are fantastic. There were so many. I could have like, gone through 10, 10 of them, um, but we'd be here all day. But they are really um, mind-expanding, and they're really profound. This is the one that I want to quote to you today, however. And this has been attributed to a lot of modern pastors and leaders of our day, but it's really G.K. Chesterton who was the originator of this, uh, of this sentence. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people come alive. Yes, yes, woo, yes. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people come alive. You guys, that is the truth if I have ever heard it. The truth, if I have ever heard it, God offered his perfect and complete, redeeming, unconditional, rescuing love in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He came to die on a cross for the sin of mankind. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God offers us forgiveness, healing, new life, peace, and eternity with him, just to name a few things. Who wouldn't want that gift? Anybody you know wouldn't want a gift like that? idiot. Tell, us, tell me how you really feel. But it's free, you guys. This is a free gift, and this is why we evangelize. There are too many people in this world who have a skewed and perverted, you know, vision of who God is. They don't really know who he is, and we have a huge role to play in changing their hearts and minds. So today, I'd like to take the next few minutes and talk about this subject of evangelism, we're going to answer four questions, two basic questions, and the last two are hopefully going to get to the heart of the matter. The first question is, what is evangelism? Number two, whose idea was it and why? Number three, who is it for? And number four, how do we do it? Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we are so grateful to be in your house today to gather as believers to gather as image bearers of Christ, to know that our lives are in your hands, that you love us, your grace and your mercy are for us, and we're here to gather in worship and praise and just to hear the word of God. God, I pray that what you want me to speak today will only come out of my mouth and that everything will be, else will be discarded. We just give this time to you. and We tell you we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Question number one, what is evangelism? Most of you probably know that, right? Let's look at a couple of definitions. Merriam-Webster defines it as 
the winning or revival of a personal commitment to Christ. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Dictionary.com calls it the preaching or promulgation of the gospel. Promulgation is just a fancy word for a formal and public declaration of an idea or doctrine. It sounds formal, doesn't it? Promulgation. The Oxford English Dictionary says it's the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. That sounds like a good, like a good definition also. So basically, evangelism, evangelism is the act of preaching the gospel. And the word gospel is a translation of the Greek word euangelion. Isn't that a cool word? Euangelion. That is a Greek word. You means good, and angelion means message. So basically, euangelion means good word or good message. The gospel. So Mark 16, 15, and I told you that I would tell you later what it says, so here we go. The Bible in Mark 16, 15 says it like this. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. That's the Bible's definition of evangelism. And I know, again, that not a lot of you raised your hands, but we're going to talk about the fact that all of us truly are evangelists in this room. Number two, whose idea was it? And why? Anybody know whose idea evangelism was? Amen. I think a lot of us, you know, when we watch great preachers and great orators of our day, or even in the past, like um, Amy Simple McPherson, like uh, Billy Graham, we look at them and we, we just think, man, that was their idea. That was their great idea to go and preach the gospel everywhere. But you guys, I contend that it was the Lord's idea. It was first and foremost God's idea. Now, when we look in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples on many occasions to go and preach the good news. Does he not? So we just quoted Mark 16, 15, when he tells them to go into all the world and preach the good news. Matthew 9, 37 through 38, he tells his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So go and pray to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send workers into the fields. He admonishes them that. And then also Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that's the second verse I told you that we would look at. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you see that Jesus, after he was crucified and he was killed on that cross for our sins and he was resurrected the third day, that's what he spent his time doing. In those three years, he told his disciples, go and spread the good news. But you guys, if we go back to the beginning of time, way back to the beginning of time as we know it, back in Genesis 3, I believe that God had the idea of evangelism already ready. Put it in his back pocket. And that's a big back pocket, amen? So if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis 3, it was amazing. He made the world, did he not? He separated the expanse of the heavens. He made the seas. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. He made the fish. He made the birds. He made every beautiful plant and tree that we could ever imagine. And then he made two beautiful people to tend that place. And I say beautiful because they were made in the image of God. So each one of us in this room is beautiful because we're made in the image of God. Amen? So here it was. He made everything for them. 
It was the most beautiful place on earth. And they, they didn't have to worry about anything. And they were naked. They had no clothes. They didn't have to spend money on clothes. That's great. <laughs> but the necessity of needing to be saved, to be rescued, was born because God's perfect creation decided that his perfect provision wasn't good enough. There was doubt about his promises, if they were really promises, and that he was withholding something better than everything he had already given them. Does that sound familiar? Do we sometimes doubt God's provision? Do we sometimes look at everything that he's given us, the perfect provision that he's given us, and do we doubt sometimes? I would hope not, but we do because we're human. The truth is that God was omniscient. He is omniscient. And is in his omniscience, which means that he knows everything about everyone all the time. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And in his omniscience, the Lord had the plan of salvation ready to go because he already knew what was coming. Nothing is a surprise to God. So the deception and the decision and the disobedience of Eve and her husband was already known to God. And he said, man, this is where evangelism comes in. I can imagine, I, I, I was th- sitting here earlier in the week, just praying, and I had this thought come to me. I thought, I can just imagine God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit hanging out before the beginning of time and having this amazing conversation. I could just hear the Father now. He's like, gosh, I've got this great idea. We're going to make this beautiful, perfect, gorgeous world. We're going to put everything in it. We're going to put people in it, and we're going to have a relationship with them. They're going to have a relationship with us. We're going to love them. They're going to love us back, and it's going to be just the best thing ever. But in the Father's omniscience, he goes, but unfortunately, even with everything that we we give them, even with all the beautiful and perfect things, that one little thing, that one little rule that I'm going to give them, they're going to break. They're not going to trust me. They're not going to believe that what I've given them is enough. And so, son, I need you to go down. Somewhere down in time, I'm going to need you to go down to that world, to that broken world, and I need you to give your life because you're the only way that they're going to be able to have fellowship with me again. Are you willing, son? And we all know what Jesus said, yeah? Yes, dad, I'll go. I'll do it because we love them. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Why? Why do we evangelize? Because again, his love for us is beyond anything we could ever dream of. The reason God created us was for relationship with him, to worship him, and to know him and abide in him forever. That is the why of evangelism. Okay, question number three. Who is it for? Any ideas? Us, okay. Everyone. That's what Mark 16, 15 said, right? Go into the world and preach the good news to everyone. So that means that, the, that evangelism is not just for the people who are acceptable to society, the successful, those who look good, smell good, do good, act good, but it's also for the unacceptable to society, the marginalized, the homeless, the helpless, the dirty, the smelly, the uncouth. 
That's who it's for. And it's not just for the people you're comfortable with because they look just like you or they act like you or they dress like you or they talk and think like you or they vote like you. Heaven's sakes, don't get me started. It's also for those who don't look anything like you or who you may not have anything in common with who don't act, dress, talk, or think like you. It may be for the people whose lifestyles make you really, really uncomfortable. It may be for the people who hang out in places that you would never dare go. That's who it's for. You guys, this is not meant to make you uncomfortable. Okay, just a little. But really, it's to boldly challenge you to see through the eyes of Jesus, to walk with his heart for people. I think it's, sometimes it's too comfortable for us to go to the people that we know, right? Or the people that we're comfortable with. And I challenge you to love and tell people that you would normally not tell. Okay, so number four, here we go. It's a two-part answer. How do we do it? So first I'm going to give you a very practical an easy way to evangelize, to share the gospel. Does anybody remember in here the four spiritual laws? Anybody? Gosh, I'm old. Wow. Okay. Oh, here we go. So the four spiritual laws was this little Bible tract. I was uh, saved in the 80s. And uh, after you got saved, you just got a bunch of these to go and share the gospel. It was like a two and a half by four inch book. And it had the four spiritual laws in it. And we're going to go over them really quickly. I'll just kind of give you a synopsis of some of the things that were used. Okay, you ready? So the four spiritual laws. Number one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. There are scriptures that uh, support these, so I'm going to go over a couple, okay? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Another scripture to support that is John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come to give them life, and life abundantly. Spiritual law number two, man is sinful and thus separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. The scriptures, a couple of the scriptures they use, there's more than this, I just picked a couple for each. Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 follows it up by, by saying, The wages of sin is death. Spiritual law number three. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? While we were still just ignorant of who he was, thinking we can do life on our own, and we had it all figured out, he died for us. And then John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then spiritual law number four in this little booklet says we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, each of us as individuals. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. There's a couple of scriptures they use here. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Also Ephesians 2.8.9, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God. You guys, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can't work our way into heaven. It is a free gift. And then finally, they use Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens it, I will come into him. And basically, all that means is Jesus is saying, I will come into your life. I will take residence up in your heart. And we will have this life together where you will have forgiveness. You will be healed. You will have hope for the future. And even in the tough times, you can have peace because you have me. That's what Jesus offers. What do you think of those laws? Pretty good, huh? Not bad. It's sort of a synopsis. It's a reader's digest. It's a little tutorial on the four spiritual laws. And if you're interested in using it, which I don't know if you would be, but they're pretty basic, and I think they tell us some really good things that the Bible has to say about sharing our faith. They're 10 for $10.12 on Amazon, if you want to go get them. (laughs) I looked it up. So let me just say, guys, resources, biblically-based books and tracts, they're all really great tools for evangelism. I contend that the Bible is the best written document ever to share with our friends and family. But even in that, this is where part two of my answer to how do we do it comes in. Let me pose a question to you. How many of us have listened to a great, inspiring sermon by an awesome pastor only to observe that after service week after week, he or she is not very approachable or not gracious? I hope that's not the case, but I've heard it before happen. Or how many of us have a wonderful church-going friend who calls himself a Christian, who we absolutely love and adore, but because of offense and unforgiveness, they have a stream of broken and unresolved relationships behind them? Or how many of us leave church only to find ourselves 30 minutes later treating our white person with arrogance and impatience. I know none of you here do that, right? Amen. None of y'all leave here and mistreat a white person. I hope not. And if you do, you just catch it. You know, we self-examine. The Holy Spirit is so good to remind us when we fall short. And his forgiveness is for us always. 1 John 1, 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what I'm saying here Guys, is that you and I, we in this room who know the Lord, we are sometimes going to be the only Bible that people read. Do you hear what I'm saying? We might be the only Bible that people ever open because a lot of people are not going to open the Bible in their lifetime. We're going to be the only example of God's character to the world and the only revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. Does that seem heavy or does that seem exciting? It's a good challenge, isn't it? In our day-to-day lives, what do other people see in us? How do we treat others? How do we interact with others? And when people see us in relationship with one another, what do they observe? Do they observe gossip, backbiting, unforgiveness, a cancel culture? Or the beauty of imperfect people in relationship grounded in the one who created us. That's what we want them to see. We want, us to see Jesus. They want, we want them to see Jesus within us. Love, humility, repentance, forgiveness, and serving one another. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40 says it like this. 
A Pharisee was trying to trip up Jesus, um, as they always were trying to, because um, they wanted to know what the, what the best and perfect lies. But Jesus is so awesome. He gave them the smackdown. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And then John 13, 35 says, again, Jesus speaking, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Sometimes that's way easier said than done, isn't it? But God is in the business of transforming our lives if we let him so that we can point others to him to transform their lives. So I'm reading this book called Lifestyle Evangelism. Jody gave it to me about a month ago, and I don't believe in coincidence, but she had just asked me to talk on evangelism, and then a week later, she's like, do you want this book? And I'm like, yeah. So I opened it. It's by Joe Aldrich, but I opened it, and um, it belonged to Eric Van Rie. For those of you who don't know Eric, he was one of the most amazing human beings God ever made. Amen? For those of you who know him. He and Jody, uh, he was Jody's husband. They were our uh, lead pastors right in the beginning when we came here from California to plant this church. And uh, five and a half years ago, he was suddenly, he suddenly went home to be with the Lord. It wrecked us. It, it killed us. It tore us to pieces. But, you know, we trusted in the Lord. But he built a foundation in this church that will never fade away because he walked with Jesus in such a strong way. So when I opened the book and it said, Eric Van Rie, please return. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, can't take it with me, so I'm hoping I get to keep it. We'll see. We'll see if Jody lets me keep it. It's a great book. But I'm telling you guys, the foreword, the introduction, and chapter one, I didn't get past that. It just had me ruminating for days. And I'll tell you why in a minute. The title of the first chapter, the author calls it on Embarking on a Pilgrimage to Beauty. And um, the title of my sermon today was called, it wasn't going to be Hey Beautiful, but I called it The Beautiful Bride, because that's who we are. We're the beautiful bride. I'm going to read this. It's just a little few words by the author. A beautiful bride, that's the key to evangelism. Did you never know that, that a beautiful bride was the key to evangelism? Brides bypass intellects and capture hearts. Tough, calloused, hardened men are known to weep in their presence. Men of steel melt and their wives get misty-eyed. Isn't that true, though, at weddings? Ideally, a bride is the epitome of all that is right and beautiful. She's a symbol of purity, hope, purpose, trust, love, beauty, and wholeness in a world pockmarked with ugliness. The bride motif found in both testaments is used by God to illustrate a strategy for attracting mankind to the availability of his life-changing grace. So the bride in the Old Testament was who? Israel, yes? And the bride in the New Testament is the church. It's us. You guys, that is us. He says that we are being called forth in beauty. And I'm not talking about this stuff. I'm talking about the inner beauty. God's love is the absolute catalyst of what transforms us, you guys. We want people to see a life 
that is indwelt by, that is abided in, and it's infused with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, this is the stuff we worry about too much. doesn't matter. It's the beauty from within. That's what he's calling forth in our lives. Amen? He's calling forth in us to be the beauty that attracts people to God. It's the beauty of love, kindness, compassion, generosity, joy, holiness, righteousness, integrity, other-centeredness, humility, forgiveness. And I'm sure there's a million other words we can add to that list. Those are just a few of what God wants to develop in our character so that people are drawn to him within us. The author makes a statement which I found profound. Um, He says, Jesus teaches us by his life that it is not only important that we understand and proclaim the truth, but that we ourselves become the truth. It's good, isn't it? It is always easier to study and comprehend the truth than it is to be truth. To me, that was mind-blowing. I mean, I knew that, but I love the way he said it. He says, you can't just go and start talking to people about the Lord if if you're not walking in who he is. Does that make sense? We can't go and open the Bible with someone and say, let me teach you about the, about the word of God. And then we go to lunch and we're just really mean to the white person. That just doesn't, that doesn't comprehend. Again, we're not perfect people. But we have to allow the person of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, to indwell in us and to grow us so that we become more like Jesus. So that's who people are drawn to. Not our fancy words, not our ability to talk the inner beauty of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the goal of evangelism, to draw others far from God, closer to him by the fragrance and beauty of Christ within us, so that then we can go freely and confidently proclaim his name to all the world, as Jesus states in Mark 16, 15. This is where I want to just reiterate about who we think are evangelists. It's not the people that can speak well up on the stages. I mean, they're good too, that, you know, God has called some of them to that. But he's called us to live our day-to-day lives. Our day-to-day lives are what speak volumes to the people around us. So when it says all the world in Mark 16, 15, can I encourage you that all the world doesn't mean necessarily across the ocean? For a lot of us, we'll never go on an airplane to preach the gospel. We may never go to the Philippines. We may never go to Hong Kong or Mexico or wherever. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying if you get a chance, go. Go be a missionary somewhere else if you, if you get a chance. If God opens that opportunity for you, please go. But I want to encourage you to start with the world right where you're at. And that's why we are all evangelists, because it doesn't mean we have to be great orators. It is our lives that evangelize the people around us. In your neighborhood, at the store, at school, at work, out in restaurants, or maybe even in your home. There are people in our purview every day that are hurting, they're wounded, they're broken, They're neglected, they're abused, they're confused, they're angry. They need to be touched by the beauty of Jesus within us. Amen? 
Okay, I want to close with this story, if you don't mind. Anybody getting anything out of today? Cool. God is good. Okay, let me find this little story. Here we go. Okay. As a successful agent for change, there is nothing comparable to love. Its transforming power is beautifully real and miraculously effective. Years ago, a stray dog adopted the nine Aldrich children. Obviously, mistreated and suffering from malnutrition, the dog's reactions made it clear love was not part of its daily experience. With its tail between its legs, it would slink around, cowering as though it expected to be struck, abused, or driven away. We named the dog Tex and started loving our newest family member as only kids can do. We weren't psychologists, nor did we know of love's power to change. We just liked animals. But love won out, and Tex was transformed into a different dog. Eager to join our every antic, quick to trust our leadership in each situation, and overflowing with love that came in the form of licks and enthusiastic nuzzles, Tex literally became a new creature when love became a part of his experience. We too can be transformed by this process, broken by sin and blemished by infinite imperfections. We have not been excluded from Christ's love. Isn't that beautiful? You guys, I think a lot of us in this room, I'm guessing, are on the other side of that. We have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We have asked us to come in and to change us and to transform us so that we can be those people that love others and thus see their lives transformed. But I'm going to... In fact, I know the Lord said there are a few of you in this room who relate more to Tex, the dog. That you have been neglected and abused and have not experienced that daily love that God intends for you, that he created you for. And we're going to pray today for that. So for those of you who are on that other side, who, uh, who God has called to be lover of people's souls and to, and to be the one that helps to walk them along and see them transformed by God, I pray that you will continue in that. I pray that daily you will humble yourself and you will just praise the Lord for what he has done in your life and that you will say, how can I be an evangelist today? How can I love someone right next door to me, right across the street, at the store, wherever you go? I just encourage you to walk in that, to keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop. Let him make you everything that he created you to be. And for those of you who today are not there, that you need that transforming love of Jesus in your life, who need a touch by his love, by his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness, I'm speaking to you right now. God loves you. He created you for purpose, and he created you for plan. He created you for destiny. And that's why his son went to the cross to die for you and for me. So I want to encourage you, for anyone who's feeling that way today and who has not experienced that transforming beauty of the love of Christ, today's the day. Don't let salvation pass you by. Today is the day to step in to that place where you'll be made new. Can I pray?
Father God, you are so good. We love you so much. You are worthy of our every praise, our every blessing, all honor and glory are yours. And Lord, we thank you for loving us first. We thank you for your transforming love, the power of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your healing touch in our lives. But Lord, on behalf of those who have not experienced that yet, just cry out to you, Lord. I cry out that this would be their prayer. Lord Jesus, I don't know who you are. Lord Jesus, I don't know what that's like to be loved. Lord Jesus, I don't feel whole. I've been neglected. I don't know what, the, what she's talking about today. So I just come to you and I'm just going to throw this out, Lord, because I don't know, but I, I want it. And God, I ask for you to come into my heart, come into my life. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. I accept the penalty that you paid on the cross for my life. I humble myself and tell you that you are now my Lord, and I'm going to trust you for all that you have for me. It's not going to be easy, Lord, but I, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to lean into you, and I'm going to talk to others about it and get, get help, get discipleship. But I want you, Lord. And God, I'm telling you that Jesus is right here. He is coming to you. He will come into you today. Come take residence in your heart and in your life. He's right where you're at. He will meet you today. So please respond to the love of Christ today. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Amen. Can we give God a round of applause? Thank you, Jesus. Um, if, any, if any of y'all really, um, whatever you need, if you need prayer or if you have questions or if you prayed that prayer at the end, you can talk to the person you came with or come see me or anybody else here in this room that can walk you through it. Um, love you guys and have a wonderful, beautiful week. Thank you guys for joining us online. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.